And this is KBOO Portland, your U-N-I-T-Y community radio. And you and I are the ones that make it happen. It's coming up on 11 o'clock on a Friday morning. That means this time around, we'll be hearing the digital divide. Yes, our host, Rabia Yemen. We'll be looking at issues in science, technology, and humanity. I believe this month, it's something to do with mushrooms. So, hobbits, tune in. On that note, I'm talking about the community, the UNI. It's the community that all comes together. There are some members of our community that got involved in one particular way that made sense for them. Your job is to get involved in the way that makes sense for you. Are you going to come down to 20 Southeast 8th and give of your time and energy to support and be part of all the work that happens here to bring you this signal on which you depend? Are you going to go to kboo.fm and click on the button marked Donate to pour in some of the dollars and pennies and nickels and dimes and quarters that cover the bills incurred by the people in giving their time and energy? Are you going to do some of each? That's up to you. Some other folks got involved, as I said, in the way that made sense for them and to the extent that made sense for them. And I'm going to tell you about it now when I mentioned that KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO listener members and support from Portland Underground Graduate School, a local independent learning community offering courses and workshops for continuing lifelong learning, scholarships and other tuition opportunities available, course options and more information online at pugspdx.com. And now, as promised, this is The Digital Divide on KBOO Portland, your community radio. Welcome to the Digital Divide. In the early 1960s, scientists openly advocated for experimentation with psychedelics. William A. Richards does just that in his book Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experiences, the first well-documented account of the effect of psychedelics on biological processes, human consciousness, and revelatory religious experiences. Bill Richards from psychiatry department at Johns Hopkins Medical School in Baltimore, Maryland. Richards argues that if used responsibly and legally, psychedelics have incredible potential to reduce human suffering and constructively contribute to the quality of life on our planet. His work is based on nearly three decades of legal research with volunteers in a medical setting aged 24 to 81. William A. Richards is a clinical psychologist with formal training in theology and comparative religion at John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. Earlier in his career, he pursued psychedelic research at the Spring Grove Hospital and Maryland Psychiatric Research Center in Baltimore. William A. Richards, welcome to the Digital Divide. Your book, Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experiences, is a really thorough description of some of the effects of psychedelics that people have while they're under the influence of I, I just think under the influence 
that it, maybe it has developed a negative stigma, even though there's no really no reason for it to mm-hmm. have one. Do you agree with that? Yes. One of the things about psychedelics is how do we break the negative stigmas about psychedelics so that we can see them as useful tools and opportunities to expand our thinking? Okay. How do we break the old outdated stigmas? I think it's through uh, good education and uh, trusting that people are intelligent enough to, uh, to think. And a lot of the fears of the 1960s, you know, the idea that uh, if you take psychedelics, you will jump out of windows and your genetic legacy will be damaged, and so on. And it's interesting to reflect uh, as to what all was going on back in the 1960s. I think there was a lot of social change and the psychedelics kind of became a very symbol or a target for a lot of different things that were going on then. Are, are you saying that psychedelics represented a rejecting of old values and old systems and old ways of thinking, and that was threatening, and that was part of the reason for the pushback? I think so, and uh, it was a very turbulent time. You could also say it was cathartic. That's right, creative even, hopeful even, you know. And then came disco. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, psychedelic research became uh, essentially totally dormant uh, for 22 years as kind of a casualty of uh, that social change. What's so wonderful is that it has begun again, and now I think we're doing it perhaps more wisely, more scientifically, with less hype and more uh, grounded, double-blind controlled studies and so on. You know, I certainly want to stress that psychedelics are not without their dangers and they're not for everyone, uh, but used responsibly and wisely, uh, they seem to have incredible promise for positive applications in the world. What would you describe as some of the dangers of of taking psychedelics? Well, we know without doubt that what happens is much more than a simple drug effect. (laughs) The experiences aren't in the substance. Uh, They're in the human mind. And these major psychedelics seem to unlock the door, if you will, to these deeper levels of consciousness. And what happens uh, depends a lot on who you are, your capacity to trust, how safe you're feeling, the dosage and purity of the substance. So you don't advocate just the um, unsupervised recreational use of psychedelics? Uh, No. Well, I find the term recreational almost offensive. Uh, Tell me why. If it's recreational, maybe, you know. But psychedelics take you where you need to go. And it takes some people into very painful places initially. Right. You know, personal and spiritual growth isn't always fun. You know, it can take you into unresolved grief and guilt and uh, repressed anger and confusion. And um, if you're not willing to go and sort out those areas, uh, you're likely to just kind of uh, fight for control and then you can experience panic and you can get paranoid. And uh, the reason you get paranoid is that you're running away from things within yourself that are asking for resolution. And all of a sudden you're feeling panic and paranoia and maybe you're ending up in a psychiatric emergency room. Um, but it's because uh, you're not prepared uh, to deal with the content that you're unlocking and that your mind is presenting to you. When you're talking about taking psychedelics, we're talking about doing it in a clinical environment that's supervised. When I first um, learned about uh, psychedelic trials that were FDA approved in the United States, my jaw dropped. So are you one of the individuals who started these trials? Well, not at the very beginning. The earliest beginnings were in the mid-50s, 
uh, in treatment of alcoholism in Canada, for example, and uh, they were used a good bit in uh, accelerating psychotherapy in Europe. And at those times, uh, there was no controversy about psychedelics at all. Sandoz laboratories in Switzerland simply mailed them to people who were interested in trying them out in their psychiatry practices or doing research projects with them. President Nixon called Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America and so on. The research did become dormant, I, which is quite amazing because there were there had been several international conferences. There were well over a thousand uh, papers on psychedelic therapy that had been published in professional journals. That it was possible to get the genie back in the bottle is really quite amazing. And there's been this kind of deep freeze until Dr. Roland Griffiths and I in 1999 uh, started research at Johns Hopkins and uh, we've been this is our 16th year now and it's going strong and there's been no sensationalism and consistently hopeful uh, findings tell our listeners what that uh, what that research and what those trials at Johns Hopkins entail well there's been a number of, of studies uh, the first one was a double-blind controlled study just to demonstrate that it is indeed psilocybin that causes these deep, profound, transcendental or spiritual experiences and not simply suggestion. Uh, we did a study with uh, Ritalin and psilocybin and everything was held constant except the, the contents of the pill that was given on a particular day and no one but the pharmacist knew what was in that pill. Uh, the preparation, the music, the physical setting uh, was all the same. And clearly we demonstrated scientifically that it, those who received psilocybin had these profound experiences, and those who received Ritalin uh, as a whole did not. What so, type of people qualify for these studies? Like, who gets in a study like that? Because I know everybody in our audience is raising their hand right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on the study. Uh, there's a lot of different studies. You know, after that, we did a dose-response study where people got different doses to see what the response would be. Uh, then, uh, like, we've done research uh, using psilocybin to help people stop uh, nicotine smoking. And so to qualify for that one, you have to have tried to stop and failed many times, and finally you can qualify for our research project. We have done work that's just about to be published uh, using psilocybin to help uh, people with uh, serious physical illnesses such as terminal cancer to help treat their depression and anxiety uh, open up their interpersonal communication, uh, helps many of them lose a fear of death when they have these very profound experiences. But to, to qualify for that, unfortunately, of course, you have to have a diagnosis of cancer and you have to have a significant degree of anxiety. Every study has its own uh, selection criteria. Right. We have a project right now for... Uh, full-time religious professionals to see if uh, some uh, profound religious experiences might increase the effectiveness of their ministry. And are but, people signing up for that? Yes, yeah, but you have to be a full-time clergy person in charge of a, a church or synagogue or mosque or sangha uh, in order to qualify and so on. So do, are you recruiting how do, how do people get enrolled in that? Well, they usually find our website, which is religiousleaderstudy.org, and that tells exactly uh, what the selection criteria are and how to go about expressing interest. And we even have travel funds to help people who need it and so on. Now, in the 60s, you signed yourself up as a research subject. That's right. Tell us about uh, well, that. Actually, it was the early... Well, yes, it was the 60s, 1963. That's right. 
That's right, a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but when I signed up, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know the word psychedelic, and I certainly couldn't spell psilocybin. I had just heard that uh, there was this drug at the clinic in Göttingen, Germany, that was allowing some people to uh, gain new insight into their early childhood. And I thought that sounded interesting, so I applied and got accepted and was led to a little basement room and given some psilocybin and uh, left alone. And by some miracle, I had a very positive experience that has uh, influenced the rest of my life. It changed your life. That one experience opened up doorways that made you say, what the heck was that? And I want to go there again and look around some more. What did you give me? How do you spell that? <laughs> yeah. And, and what was that experience that was so you know, life-changing and cathartic for you? Well, I, I describe it in the introduction of, to my book, yep. uh, Sacred Knowledge. Um, but it was basically a, a unitive mystical type of uh, consciousness that uh, I did not even know was possible and certainly didn't expect on that day. So I was one very odd 23-year-old graduate student. Those mystical experiences, let's, let's kind of dive in there. Even though each person's experience is, uh, you know, unique to them, there are commonalities, there are threads that run through so many people's experiences. The, the feelings of unity, transcendence, everything's exactly as it should be, everything is connected. These thoughts or experiences that people have are so consistent. And you say in your book, that even though someone may experience this, they, they may not experience it every time they take the psychedelics. They may only have that experience once, or they may skip a few times and have it again. Talk to us a little bit about that, those experiences that people have. Sure, I'd be happy to. First, I guess I'd like to back up and just stress for your listeners who aren't familiar with this uh, area of research that there's no such thing as kind of the psychedelic experience in a, any more than there are there's one altered state or one meditative state there's a whole range of incredibly different states of consciousness within the human mind uh, from just mild perceptual changes to uh, reliving things from childhood to uh, visionary uh, states of landscapes and precious stones and uh, gods and goddesses uh, to what we call this mystical consciousness, which is this profound unitive state that just feels intrinsically sacred and is so beyond language that some people don't even try to put it into words. They'd rather compose music or write a poem than write a research report. We don't actually have words to um, adequately describe some of the experiences. That's right. There's a line in the Tao Te Ching, the Chinese scriptures that I love to quote, that just says, those who know do not speak. Those who speak do not know, you know? And there's a certain wisdom in that. But since we're doing research, of course, we want to try to put it into language as much as we can. And the way we've done it is with uh, six categories, that when someone has one of these mystical experiences or one, when one of those mystical experiences has somebody <laughs> and they write a report, you can always find six categories, which are unity, transcendence of time and space, intuitive knowledge, a sense of sacredness, a deeply felt positive mood such as joy, peace, and love, and claims of ineffability and what we say paradoxicality. It's very hard to put into words. So people say, I died, but I was never more alive, or uh, the ultimate one was only one ultimate reality, but it contained everything that is. And it sounds like people are contradicting each other, but it's really what ph philosophers would 
acknowledge is just the paradoxical nature of these profound uh, states of human consciousness. So when people are having a psychedelic experience or an experience uh, while under the influence of psychedelics, and that's real for them, however, how do we know that that's real or not just their imaginations kind of running wild or not just chemically induced um, sensations um, or maybe hallucinations or, or thoughts that are just chemically induced but aren't actually real, whereas you know, we're kind of talking under the presumption that people have mystical experience, that that is a real experience and and presumably that world, that universe, that unity that they're perceiving is real and exists beyond our, you know, three-dimensional touchy-feely world. So how do we know that that's real and not just a chemically induced or imagination or emotional? Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, and that's a type of question that can be debated late into the night. It, it's And it's similar to the question, how do you know that you love your spouse or your children? You know, what do you choose to trust? And there are experiences especially these transcendental mystical experiences, that when they occur, they just intuitively feel uh, profoundly real. People say that uh, it felt more real than talking to you right now. Uh, there's just something very fundamental about it that's very convincing. And you can always say, well, maybe it's a big delusion, you know? Right. But, but throughout history, uh, throughout the origins of uh, religious literature, um, uh, the whole history of mysticism, you know, people have reported these experiences with awe and respect and uh, sense that there's something incredibly precious about them. Cancer patients who have this experience and lose their fear of death uh, often talk about, gee, I felt like I I went back to where I was before I was born, or I, I went to a place outside of, t of time, or uh, if someone is knows the language of Zen Buddhism, they might say I entered into the very center of the present moment and discovered the eternal has always been there. You know? So there are different ways to try to put it into language. Uh, but these deep experiences, whether they occur with psychedelics or spontaneously or in meditation or natural childbirth or creative performance or whatever, they occur in lots of different ways. But when they happen, they have kind of a lasting legacy and they feel very real and uh, convincing to those who have them. Is it just chemical? Well, wh what's chemical? Chemi maybe there's a chemical substrate to everything that goes on, including the thoughts we're, we're having right now. Uh, almost uh, chemistry becomes another language of talking about reality, or physics may become another language of talking about reality. And uh, it all gets uh, pretty mysterious when you get down to the quantum theory and the mysteries of, of matter and so on. Uh, physics uh, gets very close to the spiritual, if not another language to talk about it at times. Well, that's why we add the word meta onto the word physics to kind of describe more than what we can pick up in the physical, tangible world. Mm -hmm. Do you think that traditional religion, modern religion, is threatened by the prospect that people would identify with a, a larger you know, being that some people might call God or the universe or whatever they might call it? Well, speaking religious language, I would say God does, does not need us to defend him <laughs> or her. Uh, the, uh, the divine or sacred dimension of 
consciousness is quite capable of uh, uh, defending itself. And I don't think there's anything to be feared. Uh, I think it's a huge frontier in theology and religious studies. In fact, in my book, there's a chapter on implications for religion. You know, if you go back in time, that time when the Pope said the earth was flat, and, you know, Bruno was burned at the stake for saying that wasn't the case, you know? Right. But but theology has matured, and the vision of the universe now is infinitely richer and every bit as awesome, if not more so than when they thought there were crystalline spheres up in the sky. (laughs) And uh, uh, I don't think religion has anything to fear. If anything, uh, it's a huge frontier that might also enhance appreciation uh, for different religious traditions of the world, almost like learning different languages. Um, And uh, it doesn't devalue your own history, but it may enable you to see how God is so much bigger than we ever thought. If you want to use the word God, some people would want to uh, use a different word because they're the word those three letters have uh, negative connotations you know they think of trying to sit still in a boring sermon and <laughs> they don't want any more of that kind of religion you know right but there's a much more sophisticated uh, approach to uh, a religion uh, that's much more in harmony with uh, the frontiers of science because people don't necessarily have the same experience every time um, when they take, let's say, psilocybin or LSD, they don't always have that quote-unquote God experience. That's right. And and that seems to be, um, some people might call, if you have it, some people might say, well, that's grace. That's That's a good example of grace. You don't always have it. Why do people have it sometimes and not others? Well, you have to ask God. (laughs) (laughs) When they occur, a person is being completely open, is trusting unconditionally, uh, is willing to uh, learn whatever needs to be learned, even if it involves some suffering. And then these experiences sometimes come. And when they come, it's, it's always a sacred moment. It's always a gift. It's like waking, awakening to a deeper uh, reality uh, that feels intrinsically eternal and sacred. It may be triggered by a, a drug, but it can also be triggered in other ways. Right. Uh, even when we're meditating, we are affecting our uh, inner biochemistry, the balance of gases in our blood by breath control, for example. Uh, Sometimes these experiences happen in natural childbirth, and who knows what physiological changes are going on then. What it really sounds like is that the potential to have that... I'm going to call it a meta-experience, that transcendent experience. It's a uh, good term. That that is in you all the time, and that's psychedelics or dance, or prayer, or meditation, or art, whatever it is, any of those have the potential to unlock the key that's already in you that can foster that experience. That's right. You know, the Buddha is the man who woke up. Right. And perhaps there's a Buddha within us all. You know, a point I, I want to be sure to get into our, our program here, too, though, yes. is that it's not only that these mystical experiences are you know awesomely inspiring and beautiful and wonderful and all that which is not to be underestimated but what makes us so interested in them uh, in psychiatry is that they also seem to have what William James called fruits for life is that there are changes in attitude and behavior that often come in their wake and uh, 
you know, William James took this pragmatic stance that by their fruits ye shall know them, you know? And regardless of whether the state is genuine or illusory or uh, epiphenomenon of some physiological process or wh- however you want to understand it, if you just look at, well, what, what does it do to you? And our findings are that, you know, highly functioning people to begin with claim to feel uh, more integrated, more compassionate, more tolerant of people who see the world differently than they used to. They claim less anxiety, less depression, uh, more humor, more playfulness. All the things that Abraham Maslow, one of my wonderful mentors way back in graduate school, uh, described as characteristics of self-actualizing or highly functioning people. And uh, Maslow found that many of these highly functioning people like Albert Einstein and Eleanor Roosevelt had these experiences spontaneously, as he himself did. Maslow never took psychedelics. He'd just lie down in his backyard and have mystical experiences. And some people have kind of an innate biochemistry that seems to make these experiences accessible. And others of us uh, generally... uh, needs some assistance uh, either through meditative practices or someday when these drugs become legal in uh, appropriate centers uh, with the use of psychedelics. I'm Rabia Yaman with The Digital Divide, and today I'm speaking with William A. Richards. His book, Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics, and Religious Experiences is the first well-documented, sophisticated account of the effect of psychedelics on biological processes, human consciousness, and revelatory religious experiences. In, in your experiences with psychedelics, talking about consciousness, how do you define consciousness? How would you define it? That's one of these huge, huge questions. Uh, I think of consciousness as uh, kind of the ultimate nature of of energy, of the of the mystery of what we are. And uh, with all due respect to the incredible frontiers in neuroscience, where we're beginning to link certain states of consciousness with certain activity in certain areas of the brain and so on, uh, we're still, we hardly know what we are yet. There's a huge mystery of what is consciousness, what, what is the human psyche, uh, what are we, you know? We have and, mystics uh, among us, like, let's take Ramdas or Richard Alpert, who I don't right. know if you had any uh, contact with during your... Uh, yes, I I knew I knew Richard before he became Ram Dass. Okay, <laughs> that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah. One of the questions I just wanted to kind of pose to you, that comes from uh, mystical experience or experience under psychedelics, and and that is a a kind of a common experience that people share, maybe not every time. Uh, but uh, one of the one of the commonalities uh, that you talked about is time, the perception of time, and even during our conversation today, you've said, you know, outside of time, uh, yes. going outside. So time definitely is a human construct. I think if mm-hmm. you doesn't take much argument to say, well, we invented time, and that keeps everything orderly. Right, time um, and space and substance. Right, but yeah. but if everything that's the way we organize our world, that's right, that's right, and and sometimes when you might be under the influence of of um, of psychedelics, then people might have a common experience of uh, of there either not being any time or time just not being relevant. So, mm-hmm. so the, my question is, if everything that is happening at any one time is exactly what is supposed to be happening. So in other words, everything is exactly in its place in time. Why study? Why meditate? 
why practice whatever you practice? Because everything that's happening is exactly as it should be in that perception. Um, that's a deep philosophical question. It's The way I think of it is that the life of the ego, our everyday personalities, uh, that part of us that goes with our common name, that goes to work and comes home and cooks dinner, yeah. you know? Right, chops uh, wood, carries water, right. That's right. That that part of us has its own reason for being, and it's part of the magnificence of the universe. And um, I think egos are to be uh, treated well and respected and cared for. Well, they help us get to work in the morning. <laughs> right. I think to, to kill off the ego, to have a mystical experience, will just create depression. That, that you've got to value the ego. But having said that, uh, there are other states of consciousness to which we have access that go beyond our individual personalities, That uh, where you have a sense of the... Uh, the family of man, our, our universal uh, heritage, the realm of the archetypes, these profound spiritual states that seem tied in with the origins of religious systems and revelation. And they're incredibly beautiful and incredibly awesome. And uh, I think if there is such a thing as enlightenment, it's being aware of both of those realms, you know, in Buddhism, what does the enlightened man do? He chops wood and carries water, you know? He does exactly what he was doing before he was enlightened. That's right. He does it maybe with more joy and more <laughs> inner peace, but he still functions in the world. Right. And um, if we became more enlightened as a, a culture, um, I think we might be uh, a more creative, peaceful uh, compassionate lot, uh, but I think there, we'd still uh, accomplish a lot, and uh, the world would still be a very wonderful place in which to live. We might be more intelligent in the way we solve some of our international conflicts, you know? Well, one would hope none of them make any sense to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I can't figure out what everybody is fighting about. <laughs> That's right. In your, in your book, you write, spaces similarly claim to be transcended in mystical states. The heavenly realms are not experienced as located in a particular place, either in our universe or in another galaxy, like some vacation spot where one could send a spaceship if we knew the vectors to program the address to. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, uh, that again is just the consistent claims of mystics uh, throughout religious literature and people who have uh, these transcendental experiences today with or without psychedelics and consistently they say that uh, consciousness can somehow um, manifest itself beyond time and space and uh, uh, physicists might call it uh, the energy dance or something like that. Is is that the same as saying unification? Um, I think that would fit. So is it reasonable to speculate at least that all of us as individuals and everything that is alive in the world, and maybe things that aren't alive because they're still made up of things that are kind of buzzing around, mm -hmm. that the whole of all of our perceptually separate thoughts, actions, our thought words and deeds make up the universal consciousness or is it bigger than that? <laughs> Probably it's even bigger than that. <laughs> yes. Where when people claim to be outside of time in their awareness, you know, they often claim you know, access to the past or the future, or there, some people believe in prior lifetimes, and uh, it's just a incredible frontier that we 
hardly know where to begin our studies. You do, you, do you have a, a um, position on reincarnation? No, but I am very open to it. Uh, a lot of people in our world take it for granted as much as we tend to take it for granted that we only have one life. Um, we'll find out when, when we get there, I guess. We'll either find out or we won't. What do you want people to take away from your book? What, what, how can they use it? Well, I would hope uh, my book will help to uh, promote uh, new research with psychedelics. Uh, I hope it will promote um, more tolerance and appreciation for the incredible frontier th that we have arrived at. Uh, I hope it will dispel some of the old wives' tales from the 1960s and the unnecessary and irrational fears that people have about psychedelics. Uh, I hope those who choose to use them before they become legal, and I think the day will come when they will be legal, but I hope those who choose to take those risks uh, will do it more wisely. I think there is an art to using them, uh, much more involved than simply swallowing a pill or a capsule, and uh, if someone is determined to use them, it would behoove them to do some good research about how to use them wisely so that they may be beneficial and not detrimental in their effects. I know that there are a lot of what some people call designer drugs, and also there are uh, substances that are, you know, bought, sold, and distributed on the street that people call LSD. And and then they have the, like an incorrect perception that they've taken this substance and that the experience that they had, you know, was not on that substance. It was, and, and they don't even know what they're ingesting. And, and I think that people have become very, especially younger people, very casual about that. And we hear occasionally of people dying at raves or different festivals mm -hmm. from taking substances that they just don't know what they're doing or they're taking two or three and they're mixing them together and they don't even know what they're on. And I think that has the potential to, you know, push back the positive movement that your research has done. That's right. There are incredible uh, risks uh, when you don't know what you're taking and you don't know the purity, you don't know the dosage. Uh, you don't even know if it really is what it's claimed to be. Right. And that's one of the dangers of these drugs being illegal, uh, where if you could go to a uh, retreat center and be medically screened and well-prepared and learn how to respond constructively to the opportunity of consciousness opening up within and have support and wise choice of music and interpersonal grounding and all this good stuff, uh, then it's a very different scene. And uh, I hope to live long enough to see that become reality. I would like to see that become reality too. Do you do research with LSD? Uh, we, we haven't to this point. Uh, We've stuck with psilocybin primarily uh, for a number of reasons. One is LSD is simply so uh, controversial that people go crazy when they hear those three letters. They'll be listening uh, to this show. I can promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> but also psilocybin uh, has a long natural history, a good safety record. It's been used and is still being used by Indians in their... Uh, religious ceremonies. Uh, it's really a, a very promising substance for uh, practical applications in medicine, for example. When you do research with psilocybin, are you using synthesized or natural forms? We're using uh, synthesized psilocybin. And how does that work? Well, uh, exactly the, the same as the uh, natural form, really. It it's the psilocybin molecule 
Ours has come from a uh, chemistry laboratory at Purdue University, uh, but there's no question that it's a very sacred substance when it's used wisely, and uh, it's very effective. And thus we're able to know the purity and the exact dosage of the substance that we're administering, where if you're using mushrooms, uh, there's 180 different species of psilocybin-containing mushrooms, and they may all vary in potency depending on how they were grown and how they've been handled and what other substances might be in the mushrooms besides psilocybin. So uh, it's much more scientifically clean to work with the synthetic substance. I think if there was more knowledge about the type of work that you're doing mm-hmm. and and the research that's going on, that a lot of people would be more conscientious and not as willing to just, you know, basically eat anything. It's like they're taking a calculated risk mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, what they're actually putting in their body and the long-term effects that it might have on them. That's right. The types of drugs that people say they're taking all the time. Sometimes I wonder, have I turned into my grandma or am I? (laughs) Is that concern, you know, warranted? And it feels legitimate. It feels like, Mm -hmm. yeah, some of these things are just chemicals and you don't have any idea what they are and neither do I. That's right. Actually, in my book, I use the, the metaphors of downhill skiing. And I remember I, I write about the first time I went skiing without any instruction whatsoever and what a total fool I made of myself and how I endangered myself and other people, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but with some instruction and you learn how to control uh, your speed and slow down and... Uh, uh, determine uh, safe directions and not hit trees and so on. Um, skiing can be quite wonderful for many people. Uh, there's some who may never choose to go skiing, and that's all right, you know. Hand but raising, raising my hand right now. Consciousness, <laughs> and it's not only with psychedelics; it's also with meditative techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to know what you're doing, and you have to go about it with some seriousness and. Wisdom and uh, read what's out there to help you learn from other people's mistakes. You know how how do you how does ayahuasca fit into into all of this? You know, ayahuasca is very the sacred substance used in uh, Brazilian religions mm-hmm. uh, is very similar to psilocybin uh, molecularly. Uh, the active ingredient is DMT, dimethyltryptamine. And uh, actually one of the fascinating uh, thoughts theoretically is that our bodies seem to naturally produce uh, DMT. Uh, who knows where? It's, some people think it may be in lung tissue or whatever. But but DMT has been found naturally synthesized in the human body, and one theory of spontaneous transcendental experiences is that the dose of that substance or who knows what other chemicals that may inhibit it or whatever it is, uh, but the, there's a psychopharmacological basis for these experiences even when they occur spontaneously that may be very similar to what happens when someone takes uh, mushrooms or ayahuasca or peyote or the the so-called major psychedelic substances. The insight from mystical states is always that consciousness appears to be indestructible, that the eternal world is simply there, somehow beyond time and space and matter and um, we barely know how to begin to put that into language and rational constructs Um, but the uh, I think of the Nataraja the dancing Shiva in Hinduism you know the god that uh, constantly dances as worlds come into being and go out of being 
uh, sort of like a child who makes a tower of blocks and knocks it over gleefully and builds another tower, you know? And that concept in, in religion of uh, civilizations coming and going is pretty awesome. And to see it all as part of a dance. I'm rather committed to our planet and our dance right now. Yes. And I would like to see us thrive and uh, be more ecologically sensitive and uh, be more at peace with one another and uh, move towards uh, some sort of utopia or golden age, not in a naive way, but in a very realistic way. And I'm kind of an optimist. What's your next project? Well, I'm plenty busy right now uh, uh, working on this project with uh, professional religious leaders. Tell us about that. Well, th that's uh, to see if, uh, to what extent, uh, a couple uh, well-designed, uh, well-prepared for psilocybin sessions might help clergy uh, feel more effective uh, in their ministries. How many people participating in that right now? Well, it's just a small pilot study of 24 okay. people right now. But there is also promise for what uh, my friend Bob Jesse at the Council on Spiritual Practices calls the betterment of well people. And uh, the psychedelics may have significant value for healthy people who would like to be more creative, more compassionate, uh, more effective in uh, the way they live. Sign me up. Uh, Where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> well, keep tuned. I'll keep t I will keep tuned. Um, how many different faiths are represented in the 24-person study right now? Uh well, well, the psychedelic research since its uh, rebirth about a decade ago, uh, a decade and a half now, actually is uh, expanding. It's going on at uh, not only Hopkins, but New York University, the University of Wisconsin, University of uh, Alabama in Birmingham. Um, uh, work was going on at UCLA in Los Angeles. Uh, in Zurich and in uh, Spain, in Barcelona. So it's a very hopeful time for those of us who are dedicated to uh, responsible legal studies here. I think it's a miracle. And I know that most people you know, that I talk to have no idea that there are actual FDA-approved studies going on in multiple locations that involve psychedelics. And I know from MAPS that just in 2015, they finally got approval for research for marijuana for the treatment of PTSD, which is kind of amusing. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but a lot of people don't know that, that these studies are going on, and that, that really speaks volumes that there, there's evidence there's scientific consideration that these substances can be helpful in in possibly a variety of uses. Yes. Yeah, I think in uh, medicine, in education, and in religion, uh, three of the chapters of my book address that specifically. William Richards author of the book Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experiences. Where can people learn more about your work? Well, um, they certainly can uh, obtain my book, and um, it's out there, um, both in uh, uh, digital form and hardback at this point. If people are interested in the Hopkins study, uh, a good uh, source is C sp.org forward slash psilocybin uh, the Council on Spiritual Practice site that has a pretty good compilation of the professional articles we've published and the commentaries on them um, 
uh, arrowwood.org always has a lot of good information about uh, the frontiers of psychedelic research. And of course, there's maps.org. And maps. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that these studies provide a basis for justifying you know, the ongoing use and, and study and research of not only the chemicals themselves, but consciousness and religion and, and what that means in relationship to our physical world. Yes. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time this afternoon. Well, thank you for inviting me to be on the program. And, um, all good wishes to everyone who would venture into a deeper understanding of, of human consciousness. for the news headlines. And it's 11.58. Right now, time for the KBOO News at Noon for Friday, February 8th, 2019. An online petition demanding the release of rapper 21 Savage has reached more than 200,000 signatures. The petition was created by Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Khan Cullors and supported by various other organizations. It says that 21 Savage has no current or prior criminal convictions and says it's shameful that he and so many black immigrants are separated from their families on a daily basis as part of the U.S. government's heartless and racist immigration policies. That's in the words of the online petition. In a statement released earlier this week, his legal team said the performer was born in the United Kingdom, came to the United States at age seven. He returned to the UK for about a month in 2005, then came back to the U.S. He's currently imprisoned in an Immigration and Customs Enforcement facility pending deportation proceedings. The U.S. Supreme Court has decided to stall an unconstitutional anti-abortion law from Louisiana, meaning Roe v. Wade and women's right to sovereignty over their bodies remain in place for now. 
Although the Louisiana law will not go into effect tomorrow as planned, the Supreme Court has not yet made a final ruling. Women's rights advocates say that if the anti-abortion law in Louisiana is allowed to stand, it will force Louisiana women to go out of state for medical care. They say this places an unfair burden on neighboring states, including Texas, where an identical law was ruled unconstitutional just two years ago. The Senate Judiciary Committee has voted William Barr, Trump's nominee for attorney general, out of committee and onward to full Senate confirmation. The committee also approved 44 Trump-selected judges to serve lifetime appointments on the federal bench. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law said this shows the Senate Judiciary Committee has failed to carry out its constitutional obligation to provide advice and consent on the president's judicial nominees. Instead, the group says the committee has short-circuited the review process and rubber-stamped dozens of nominees. The committee has condemned the Senate Judiciary Committee's decision to blindly advance judicial nominees, many of whom, they say, are radical and outside the legal mainstream. Meanwhile, the acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, faced off with Congress members this morning and faced questions about potential interference into Robert Mueller's investigation. Mueller is investigating possible collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government in the lead up to the 2016 election. In response to questioning from House Judiciary Committee members, Whitaker said he has not denied any funding requests made by the Mueller investigation. But he did push back against the questioning, at one point telling a Congress member his, quote, five minutes were up, which led to audible gasps inside the hearing room. In local news, Multnomah County has moved forward with a $5.8 million deal for a homeless services center downtown. The center will be located in the Bushing & Company building located at 333 Southwest Park Avenue. The Board of Commissioners voted unanimously to approve a purchase and sale agreement to begin formal negotiations to buy the four-story building. The agreement gives the county 30 days to conduct due diligence evaluations and an additional 